Hello and welcome to the 168th episode of Rank and Review. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and this episode, my guest Rayleigh Perkins and I are going to discuss six films on the theme of classic creatures versus modern myth. I think that sort of speaks for itself. If this happens to be your first episode of Rank and Review and you're finding your way to us through Rayleigh, Hello and welcome. Please spread the word on the podcast, but you should go into it understanding that there will be some coarse language and there will be spoilers for the films being discussed. You can send feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can check out the website at rankandreview.ca and please tell a friend about the show. I really appreciate your ears. Let's get into it. Rayleigh Perkins, I just pressed record. This is all on the record now. Um, we haven't properly hung out since like the 1900s. <laughs> Very long time. <laughs> um, but Thanks for letting me come on. Uh, since we have a lot of mutual acquaintances, you've been listening to the podcast, and a couple of sources have been trying to talk you into doing the podcast for a while, I hear. No, I've been trying to talk to those sources to get me on the podcast, oh. and they didn't. So then I went directly to the source. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, that's that's the most direct way to go about it. Because uh, I know Matt had said that he was trying to talk you into doing an episode, and Lee was hanging out. I think you guys went to see a movie, or The Invisible Man, maybe it was. Yeah, I've seen a couple movies now. Yeah, and he was like, you should do the podcast. And, well, here we are. <laughs> I think he only said that because he enjoyed watching me watch that scary movie more than he maybe enjoyed the movie itself. <laughs> Honestly, maybe the only thing I enjoy more than sort of talking about a scary movie is showing a scary movie to somebody who hasn't seen it and who I know is going to have a really good reaction to it. Our mutual acquaintance, Matthew Risling, I showed him Session 9 for the first time. He'd never seen it, and it scared the shit out of him, and it was awesome to watch. <laughs> I showed him Ghost Shark, and he did not appreciate... He didn't the see the movie. the subtle charms of Ghost Shark? It was not his favorite movie, That's no. too bad, that's too bad. I'm I'm more of a Sharktopus man myself. Oh, my roller derby name was going to be Sharktoperks. 
Oh, very nice. Yeah. <laughs> so you pick this episode, which I'm calling um, Classic Creatures versus Modern Myth. So we have sort of three adaptations of classic sort of creature stories and, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in, in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, and uh, who is it, the director of, uh, Stephen Frears, the director of Dangerous Liaisons, doing that Mary Riley one. These are all very classy, big-budget Hollywood productions tackling historically famous monster creature books, whatever. So, yeah. and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have three, by comparison, very cheap I, I don't say that un, unkindly but they just don't have the money behind them yeah and, low budget yeah but they're tackling more modern myths letters from the big man is a quote serious take <laughs> on bigfoot boogeyman is a horror movie produced by sam raimi who i usually enjoy quite a lot uh talking about the boogeyman but when i saw his name on that list of people who made that movie hopes went up hopes went yeah, up it really did it really did for that second and then this really strange mockumentary from zach penn called incident at loch ness with uh, Werner herzog who's just a, a a director and a personality who i enjoy a lot which will probably help my enjoyment of that film <laughs> but uh so they're different but they kind of the sort of yin and yang in them aren't just that they're sort of talking about sort of modern legends against historic legends and sort of big budget versus cheap, but really they're trying to ring the same bell. They're just kind of going about it in different ways. And I don't know, I thought it would be an interesting theme to discuss. Why did you pick this list? <laughs> he um, says accusingly. Yeah, well, when you sent me a few different options and I kind of went through them and I had seen and read both Dracula and Frankenstein. So I kind of had some sort of foundation, like familiarity with those stories. Right. Uh, I had not seen the Dracula movie since my crushes on Keanu Reeves days, like way back. Oh, my and, crush and, on Keanu Reeves has never gone away. <laughs> and so I... I think I had it maybe held up on a little bit higher level than right. I remember it. Like maybe like romanticized version of that movie. Okay. So that was kind of why I picked this list. I also like creature movies. So Loch Ness and Big Man kind of creature movies. So that was kind of why I went with this list. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to spoil the meal right out of the gate. I don't think it's a very strong list as far as the quality of the films on it. Which I was kind of wondering if you did this, like, did you want me to come back? Or, like, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I think that it's valuable to, you know, it doesn't have to be a furious bitch session, but I think we can still have a good conversation. Where it gets tricky is ranking the movies. Because, yeah. like, out the gate... Nothing deserves first place, and in a weird way, nothing deserves last place. I was kind of saying the same thing when we kind of talked about chatted earlier. Like, I enjoyed watching them, even though I could see why they were maybe not the best movies I've ever seen. I still really enjoyed them. I actually watched them a couple, of, like a few of them, a couple of times, just to because they were long. Like they were <laughs> a couple of them were. They were lengthy, so I kind of drifted off a bit. Uh, I might have kept you waiting a little bit there, too. Sorry about that. No, it was all good. Uh, 
but yeah, when it came down to actually ranking and being like, which one of these movies did I enjoy the most and least? It became, and when I was trying to explain them to my girlfriend, like, I couldn't really tell her, like, what we were going to be talking about or, like, or she's like, do you want me to watch one of the movies with you? And I'm like, mm, no, this, no, that's okay. This is totally <laughs> one of those lists, too, where I could picture sitting on the couch with a significant other and about, like, two-thirds of the way through the movie looking at it and saying, why are we watching this? <laughs> like, I have to because of Larry's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine. It was all good. Well, one of Matt's first episodes was just a really bad ghost episode. We had like a bunch of not good ghost movies to talk about, but it's still like I, I'm kind of fond of that episode. <laughs> it's fun. There was a there was a good vibe about it. So. Uh, as much as I'm going to be negative about a lot of these movies, I'm tr- going to try not to be a dick about it if I can help it. There's a couple that there's a couple that hurt my feelings particularly bad, but I don't often see the value of just raging against a movie. So many podcasts are just so this is fucking bullshit. Everybody who did this movie is stupid, and I don't know. It gets tiresome I to me. There are some elements of good in like I have some good things to say too. So. Right. Yeah, well, do you want to get into it? Is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction, or shall I list out these movies one more time and we get started? I say we get started. Thank you for being here, really. Um, we're going to talk about Letters from the Big Man. We're going to talk about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> then we're going to talk about The Boogeyman. And we're going to talk about Mary Riley, Incident at Loch Ness, and we're going to finish it with Bram Stoker's Dracula. out here for week or so oh i come out here all the time out here out here what for whether you paint what you dream or, or whether you paint from life whatever it is you're the one no so Rayleigh, how do you feel about bigfoot so i was saying i thought that this movie was going to be from like the 70s and be this like weird 70s romantic comedy about Bigfoot. Right. I was partially right (laughs) about it. It was not filmed in the 70s, though. It was 2011. We just found that out. Right. And, and, I mean, like, Bigfoot is not, like, a big thing on my... I don't know a lot about it. I lived on the West Coast. I maybe should know more about it, but... But you're, you're indifferent to it? You wouldn't say you're a believer or not a believer? You're just Bigfoot? Oh, I'm not a believer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you, but it's one of those things that I want to believe. I have a Fox Mulder approach to Bigfoot. Like, if somebody hit Bigfoot with their car, I would actually be thrilled. Like, like it, Yeah, exactly. But it would be a complete game changer for me as far as what things I believe could be possible but it's one of these dangerous things as far as you know modern myth that it 
it's believable mainly because people want to believe it. I like the idea of there being Bigfoot out there. I don't think he is, but I fucking love the idea of it. I believe you just bring it into creation with your mind. Exactly. Eh? <laughs> well, and I feel like this writer director, Christopher Munch, loves the idea of Bigfoot too. <laughs> like, he loves it. Uh, it was a very romantic movie about Bigfoot, I found. And that I can connect to. I don't love the movie, but I love how much the movie loves Bigfoot, if that makes sense. I thought there were moments, it was very long, yeah. again. It was like over almost two hours. Like a lot of like panning shots of just trees and coast, which I like because it made me a little bit homesick for the West Coast and just that sort of like, oh like that's where I was and it's so pretty there and like I kind of, so I kind of connected with like that sort of theme of the movie of just these like sort of there wasn't a lot not a lot happened no <laughs> <laughs> but the movie keeps on pretending like a lot of things happened it keeps on having these big emotional moments that it hasn't really earned um I also this is a weird connection to make I'll just talk about the plot really quickly just because this is kind of an obscure movie lily ray plays a, a woman studying environmental impact who goes to these obscure area of woods uh she meets a fellow hiker and shortly after that starts feeling like maybe she's being watched and followed and is she being followed by this hiker or is it maybe something else is it maybe bigfoot that's sort of where the launch pad for the movie takes off the weird connection i made watching it again for the podcast was, are you aware of a motion picture called Say Anything, <laughs> starring John Cusack? I am very aware of that movie. Yeah, it's had this whole revisionist history of it that it's basically just a dressed-up stalker movie and that Lloyd's a dude who won't say no and follows people around and just won't take no for an answer. And that's kind of the approach that Bigfoot's taking with her. I get the feeling like Bigfoot has a crush on Lily Rabe and he's totally stalking her, but he's too nervous to actually, you know, come up and say anything to her. But it's a weird dynamic, and if it's a weird dynamic for people to do, it's a weird dynamic for Bigfoot to do. And I would have much rathered if they took it that way, if we had face-to-face -face time with her and the Bigfoot, and she connected with him, like, like the King Kong thing in Peter Jackson's King Kong, where we see a character connect with an animal, essentially. Like, a relationship is there. Not necessarily a love relationship, but like, like an animal, like with a pet or something like that. Yeah. Uh, like really. Yeah, and instead the movie keeps Bigfoot in the background. I mean, we see a lot of him sort of watching her from the trees and stuff like that, but the interaction is kept at an absolute minimum. And that's what we want when we watch a Bigfoot movie. And it's just a huge tease. The whole movie is a huge tease. I kind of like that we see so much of him, though. Like, because he is on the screen a lot. Yep. Like, a lot of the Bigfoot movies or sort of creature movies in general, they're off. You see a fleeting, there's a shadow, there's a, you know, and right from the start, we see him kind of front and center in the middle of the screen. Yeah. With her or anything, but I kind of like that we just, that's so much of the screen. Because really, it's just him and her and that like kind of swarmy lawyer, like environmental guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's kind of it for acting in that movie. There wasn't a lot of other characters. That old man. Yeah. I guess. The other, yeah, and he has this weird mystic vibe about him. He loves the Bigfoot and seems to just inherently understand what's happening without ha having it to be explained to him. 
from the woods. He gets it, man. He just understands. <laughs> he gets it on a deeper level. The thing for me, like you were saying that revisionist, like the John Cusack movie, I had it more of like that really terrible, like Reese Witherspoon, like you break up with your boyfriend and you go to the woods to find yourself. Right, right. Take on the movie, uh, to go back to your small town, whatever it is, to find yourself. And that was kind of like not what I expected the movie to be. And so when it was just this girl in the woods camping by herself for like literally the first 35 minutes of the movie is really yeah. just her in the woods. <laughs> it's true, and I would love to compliment the movie on it. There is large passages where there's no dialogue. It's just her in the woods, and you can tell that she's getting creeped out and that she feels like she's being watched, and we can see Bigfoot stalking her, and it's kind of a bold approach like uh, to the filmmaking. They're not They're not telling us the story through dialogue. They're not making her talk to herself like a lot of movies would do. And they're not trying to scare us with a Bigfoot movie. A lot of these things are kind of interesting choices, but uh, uh, the frustrating problem is the movie isn't interesting. Interesting choices, not an interesting movie. <laughs> but I thought that she did, didn't do a bad job of carrying that. Like those long moments of time with no dialogue. Like I didn't get bored watching no. her. I thought she carried that. I mean, what, I can't remember the actor's name. Like I thought she carried that, those scenes really well. Lily, Ra Lily, Lily Rabe. Rabe did you say? Lily Rabe. I believe Rabe. she's the daughter of David Rabe, who's a pretty famous playwright, but uh, I could be making that up. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> could just be there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, like, I don't know, though. Like, the whole, like, when she's in the cabin and then there's a whole, the letter, like, when he actually started leaving her the letters is right. when I kind of just started being like, oh, man. <laughs> like, well, the director and, fell in love with the lore of Bigfoot, and he got really into the idea of, you know, like, what an interaction with Bigfoot would be. And that in of itself is interesting, but I think that he fell so in love with it, and he was so fascinated with it, that he sort of just assumed everyone else would connect to that, and that that level of, you know, Bigfoot is so inherently fascinated by himself that the movie will just be fascinated otherwise. It feels like the setup to a movie like as long as this movie was it feels like the first act of a movie like it ends with her wandering out in the woods to go you know either meet or hang out with or live a life with this bigfoot creature and the credits roll because to me that's where the movie should really get cooking <laughs> i know and i was like did i just do something did i disconnect like this can't be the end of this movie like i really was didn't want it to end even though it had already been playing for sometime yeah <laughs> but yeah it was it was a bit of a like i still want to know what happened to her where like that was kind of the interesting part to me yeah and but i also was curious about the like how the like the bigfoot can like shift energy so that people can see them or not see them did you pick up on that in the movie? Well, again, that's when you're getting into the Bigfoot lore. Some people believe that Bigfoot is an animal, like a bear or like anything else in the woods that would leave tracks and would leave poop and would, you know, like... And then other people think it's sort of this more mystical, interdimensional. I didn't really feel like this thing picked a side, but the, the creature seemed to be really good at deciding whether or not it was going to reveal itself to somebody. 
I just felt that the movie maybe thought that people watching were also as into Bigfoot as they, he was. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That yeah. was the that was the thing he was counting on. You love Bigfoot so much that you will sit through anything just to learn a little bit more about Bigfoot. Just to see these glimpses of him and also lots of art of him. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to be mean about the rest of the cab, but uh, with the rest of the cast, but Lily Ray really was the only actor that I connected to. I didn't care about the relationship with her and the boy, and I guess we were not supposed to. We're more invested with her relationship with Bigfoot than we are with the uh, the actual guy. And I think that's deliberate. The whole environmental impact thing, and Karen Black has a very small role in, in the here. Uh, it, it adds nothing to the movie <laughs> for me, that angle. Even her relationship with the old man, like, I could take it or leave it. Like, Unearned. They, um, they have I, this... I thought they could have done so much more with the conflict between the environmentalists and the people who were trying to, like, the log the logger, like the logging company and stuff, but that was even just, like, over in, like, one little lawyer meeting in the office, and then we don't really come back to revisit it. And... Well, and it's weird how I think they're trying to go for a world where there's no good guys or bad guys. You know, everybody's kind of off the logging community or the nature, like like environmentalist community. Yeah, like this toad down the middle of like everyone will want to watch this movie. And look, I would probably be rolling my eyes if you know there was this evil guy saying we must clear cut the trees. Moo ah ah ah. Nobody wants that either. But I didn't connect to it, and there was this big emotional wannabe payoff where she hugs the hippie dude before she sets out and they look at each other and their eyes well with tears and I'm like and she leaves it with him yeah but but like what where did that come from they did not come close to earning that moment at all like I felt like there must have been a scene that got deleted or that they didn't have time to shoot like where where did that connection between those two come from I just I didn't see it at all and that's the closest thing we have to a quote climax of the movie if there is one unless you count her just wandering into the woods yeah <laughs> I like I thought I so I was kind of set up like I knew that this big man relationship was like brewing in the background right. but typical like I thought for sure the relationship was going to be like her and that other guy and then that when that didn't happen because he was creepily filming her <laughs> yeah so there's another stalker theme in that <laughs> but of was he filming her or was he trying to get footage of the Bigfoot that that is fair he was trying to get footage of but, but it was also, don't people, hide cameras around your girlfriend's house. That's just bad form. Have a bad time. <laughs> that's not something you're going to be able to get uh, talk your way out of with some flowers or something. That's that is a that is a betrayal of privacy. <laughs> yeah, right. There was no real moment of like like conflict or resolution or like like it just kind of was subtle in a way that some of our other movies on this list were are not, not subtle. <laughs> Nope, I, and again, I appreciate that. There, there, we do have these ping-ponging approaches. There are, some of these movies are screaming at us, and some of the movies are just taking all the time in the world. This one's taking all the time in the world. And I went into it like wanting to respect the idea that they were making a, quote, serious, clear-eyed Bigfoot movie. But the deeper into the movie, the more I just started wishing, oh, I wish this was a horror movie. I wish they were all of a sudden going to turn it around and like Bigfoot was going to rip some dude's arm off because... I am bored to tears, and I just don't want to be this bored watching a Bigfoot movie. 
as much as I can respect the ambition of the movie. Runs off into the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. But as much as I can respect the ambition of the movie, I mean, it's a hard one to recommend. Like, it's probably going to rank higher on this list just because, like, <laughs> it's it's a not great list for me. But it's one of those things, if you love Bigfoot and you want to see a movie that's different and about Bigfoot, this is that movie. But I can't really say that... I can't really tell you what you're going to make out of it. I'm sure there are some people who will really, really get into it if they just love the Bigfoot. I'm not that guy. Um, so I I want to give it a positive review. You can sort of hear me trying to give it a positive review, but I just can't quite get there. And for me, it was the less... It was like that romantic for me of the West Coast. Like I just saw that and just loved seeing it. So I was like, oh, I love this movie. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> but I mean, not much to do with like dialogue or plot. <laughs> Uh, but it was pretty to look at. It was pretty to look at. Um, fun fact, I was on Vancouver Island a couple summers ago, and uh, we did this little nature tour. This guy walked us out in the woods, talked about the local animals, wildlife, plants, and along the shore and everything like that. And because I know that there was lots of sightings about Bigfoot in and around that area, I chose to ask, so where, what do you got on Bigfoot? Where do we go to see Bigfoot around here? And the look on his face, he was so nakedly offended by the question. Like, he's a serious biologist. He's out there walking with me and my kids in the woods trying to educate us, right? And that I would deem to, like, not even in a real serious way, ask about Bigfoot really pissed him off. I'm not that guy, but I'm not the Bigfoot, uh, you know, crazy enough guy that I'll give this movie a complete pass. I've reviewed much worse movies for this podcast, and I applaud its ambition. I just don't think yeah. it was super successful. I kind of like you. Like, I didn't hate it, but I don't know who I'd recommend it to. <laughs> Good enough? Yeah, that sounds about right. It's alive. <laughs> I have said a lot of good things about Kenneth Branagh in the past on this show. I am not going to say anything fucking good about Kenneth Branagh in this show. Uh, I believe my friend Jason Dubray and I once upon a time reviewed this movie that I hated called Dreamcatcher. But uh, while I was making the review, I said I couldn't think of a movie other than this movie, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that had so much talent in it that I liked that I hated so much. Like, I am amazed. Amazed at how bad this is. I want to throw some names at you, Rayleigh. Okay, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola produced it. Frank yeah. Darabont 
wrote it. Kenneth, he went on the record to say that uh, he wants nothing to do. No, with no, it. yeah, we'll we'll get into it. But I'm just okay. I, I just want to throw this cacophony of names at you: Kenneth Branagh, John Cleese, Robert De Niro, Helena Bonham Carter, Tom Hulse, Mary Shelley's fucking Frankenstein, like the like, class monster fuck. <laughs> you, with that cast and with that text, this is already a three star movie just on its face. Even if everybody's at 50% of their capabilities and, like, Kenneth Bernard's got a hot fever while he's directing, like, there should be enough material and enough talent in this movie that it, it, it's, it has to work. It just inherently should work. And it's amazing how, like, right away, oh, this is wrong. Like, right away it miscues and it stays off cue for the entire length of the movie. And that would be bad enough. But because it's Bernard, because he feels like he's so sure-footed, and because he is screaming at you the whole time, it becomes a real challenge to put up with and sit through. I and am amazed, amazed at how terrible this movie is. That's where then, I start. Like, for me, I'm kind of glad we did Letters from the Big Man first and now this one, because it was like Letters from the Big Man did like kind of nothing in like two plus hours right and frankenstein tried to do all of everything that ever existed on film in two hours yeah like yeah. so it was so and whereas like big man was really subtle and really like just kind of nice composed and, yeah <laughs> you know i just felt that frankenstein was really frantic yeah and I struggled with that. <laughs> well, and it's shocking because Brunel, like, he's done these Shakespearean adaptations in the past. Like, before this, he'd done Much Ado About Nothing and uh, Henry V. And he works really well with Shakespeare because the big kind of complements that kind of, you know, area. And even though he'll do interesting interpretations, like with his Hamlet, he's usually at least faithful to the text, the intent of the text. I can't, like, like the movie was already terrible. I already hated the movie. But when they go into this sort of third act Bride of Frankenstein thing at the end, where it's like, okay, you, this was not in the book at all. Like, this is this is your complete invention. And not only is it complete invention, it is terrible. Like, obviously, embarrassingly terrible. And I'm shocked because I, I don't love all of Bernard's movies, but I, I have a degree of faith in him as uh, his ability to act and adapt and direct he has a baseline talent and nothing was working for him here now you wanted to talk about there's a behind the scenes turmoil too many cooks everybody you know wanted to be steering this ship coppola wanted to throw some weight Bernard was i think going through a real vanity period <laughs> and yeah darabont's script famously guillermo del toro read the script that he originally wrote and he wants to make that movie now. Like it, the rights are all like hogtied, so it'll probably never get made. But the story goes that Darabont's script was at one time really fucking good. And they changed this, they changed that. Bernard did a draft, Coppola did a draft, and what happened is, ironically, the script turned into a Frankenstein monster patchwork of a bunch of other people. And uh, well, yeah, that's not gonna that's not gonna play out with you, like. Also, it's just so over the t like everything was just so over the top. Yep. 
overacted and like the just like even the red veils whenever they're running there's these red veils of like cloth like it was just so every yeah. scene just wanted to like tell you exactly what was happening like there's no room for you to think for yourself how do we establish that Franken young Frankenstein loved his mom? His mom's gonna hug him and say, "You're the most wonderfulest, wonderfulest, specialist, beautifulest boy in the whole wide world, and I love you." It's just like, wow. <laughs> and the scene where she dies, and then the dad comes out on the stairs, and he's covered in blood. Yeah. <laughs> Dramatic. One of William. I, I think that's three times somebody in that movie collapsed on a stairwell. I believe that happens in three different occasions. Somebody just can't make it up the stairs. It's a very big staircase, to be fair. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could do that shit. You're right, Lynn. <laughs> do you like the Rocky at the top? Oh, man. Uh, and yeah, I had this moment at the end with when the, the bride comes reanimated, Helena Bonham Carter's character, and it was like, oh, these are her, like, origins of all her Tim Burton movies that she is later going to be a huge player in. Like, I didn't hate her in the movie. Right. I will say that. I've like I every now and then I sort of like, oh, Helen Bonham Carter. She really like that Sweeney Todd movie. She's really awesome. And most of the time, I'm not sure if I believe the press on her, but every now and then she really knocks it out. I don't know if she was good or bad in this movie, but by the time she had any cards to play, I already didn't like the movie. So I'm not going to put any of this on her. I have to put it on Bernal. I mean, I know that like... We're going to talk about it when we get to Dracula, but Francis Ford Coppola has an ego as well. But this was the, like... This wrecked his marriage with uh, Emma Thompson. And he ended up, uh, rumor has it, having a fling with Helen Bonham Carter. And uh, that's not... Um, you don't do that to Emma Thompson. You don't do anything bad to Emma Thompson ever. That's crossing the line, sir. And yeah. I I don't know. This He's he's a driven scientist and a, like passionate for person for sure but does he need to be this ripped shirtless like action hero his laboratory and his hair is slowing down and yeah i just couldn't buy him like i could i couldn't it was unnecessary like and you didn't picture you know frankenstein open waking up in the morning running a couple miles and doing a bunch of crunches before he hits the books right it just was inappropriate it was kenneth Branagh saying you know look at me i, I think of this as like his blade for what like if he was wesley snipes this was his blade this was the movie that actually he he came so convinced of how delicious his fart smelled that <laughs> he was gonna he was gonna mass produce them for the world and it broke my heart at the time, and it still breaks my heart watching it today. I, kept, I keep on thinking that, like, because I was such a fan of his and because I was so excited to see this movie, that it's not as bad as I thought it was. It was just I brought too much baggage to it. But every time I try to revisit it, I'm like, oh, God, this is just terrible. Yeah, I struggle, like, because I'm a big fan of the book, too. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so it just, the, the like, the it doesn't not a terrible version of the book like some of the other frankenstein movies like this one is much truer to 
form than some of the other Frankenstein movies that are out there. It addresses the theme of hubris. We still have the passage to the north, we, which is largely forgotten. There, there's no Igor character or anything like that. And, like, I appreciate all of those things. Yeah. But, and I will say, because we're filming this in the, you know, COVID... <laughs> Uh, Outbreak. Times of quarantining, and so the whole science and medicine and vaccine talk, like in that they had the, I think it was cholera was the plague that was coming, and yeah, like it just maybe resonated a little more with me now because we're kind of living in this world of like science and medicine and what's going to happen, and yeah, kind of yeah. grounded in it. So I like that little piece of it more than maybe if I would have watched it like six months ago, kind of just stuck out a little bit more, but. Uh, I thought John Cleese was good. I always think John Cleese is good, and he is fine in the movie for what it does. But again, his death sequence it just becomes hilarious. He I like mean, it's like five minutes. And yeah, overlooking thing. So, uh, and I guess we get it. This is a really good man trying to do good things, and he died for a stupid reason, and it's arbitrary, and that shouldn't have happened. We didn't need Victor Pranitzine to pound on his chest and scream, This shouldn't happen! Have I done? <laughs> I've studied the book a couple of times. As I studied it at the university and in high school, I got to do, run it through twice. And both times I got in a scrap with my teacher because I've never been on board, at least not completely on board, with the sympathetic portrayal of the creature. I mean, I can feel sorry for his situation, but I can't go so far as to justify his actions. And right. if there's anything that this movie does is that it, it lends credence to my points. Like, as far as I'm concerned, De Niro's creature is completely unsympathetic. One, like, a, just a, a, a pure pitch black villain, as far as I'm concerned. No dimension to it at all. Like, the, the most impressive thing, the makeup's okay, but the most impressive thing is some of the physical stuff he does. When he's fighting the mob, or, you know, just the, the act of violence. Like, he doesn't just kill Daniel Bartom Carter. He rips her heart out of her chest, and it's pretty hardcore. But it's Robert De Niro. Like, you think Taxi Driver, you think Cape Fear. This guy is intense and terrifying. They don't use that. Okay, well then break my heart. Nope, they don't do that. Yeah, he wasn't a very redeeming creature. Like he, I kind of wanted to be more sympathetic to him, I think. Like I wanted to like him, but I just couldn't get behind him. Like I just like, and his development of language was really shocking to me. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, that just, yeah. But I had that problem with the, in the book, in the book he, he, you know, spies on the farm, stalks the farm family for a while and really connects to them and loves them and, and values, especially the young ones. And then when he meets Victor Frankenstein's young brother, he kills him on sight and actually and then, seems to talk about enjoying it. And then frames the, like, ser- like she's not a servant. She's kind of like a handmaiden, I think. Or, yeah. And she oh, gets yeah. hung in the most hilariously over-the-top manner. <laughs> Well, and it was a character that we had no... Investment in at all. Nothing. But yeah, like, she's thrown off of a high tower with a rope that had to be like 100 feet long. And just like, what? What? Yeah. And uh, the feet dangling just out of reach. <laughs> and again, Bernal usually doing adaptations, even if he makes tweaks to it, uh, he's faithful to the intention of the of the novel. And I don't think that happens here 
at all. And I like it should though. Like there's so many reasons why this movie should work and should and that's why when again like I looked at the list and I looked at who was all involved with it and knowing knowing that it was like closer to the book than the other versions and like it just I I like, I don't understand how it didn't hit the mark. It's amazing how you keep on thinking. You get like an incredibly bad scene. And you think, okay, well, that's got to have bottomed out. This, there's no way the movie can get any fucking worse, and it totally does. Like that explosion at the end of the movie with the house catching on fire and the hallway erupting behind Helen Bonham Carter. Again, yep. Bernard collapsing on the stairs with her body in his arms, and Tom Hulse there. I- Victor Frankenstein to like walk out like the guys in action movies (laughs) slow motion running away from the fire but when he collapsed on the stairs with the the corpse and Tom Hulse is there and he's like I've got nothing else to lose and the camera zooms in on Tom Hulse's face and he says only your soul in the theater I said fuck you out loud I just I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe it like wow the good news is uh, Kenneth Branagh has not made a movie anywhere near as bad as this since. And the better news is, is I, I just don't think he could. I think if he tried, he wouldn't be able to. Like, <laughs> it wall to wall doesn't work. I don't know. Did, did, did I pull out all stops on that? Did, has that come across that I didn't like the movie? <laughs> it, it may be a little, yeah, I'm sure. I, it's obvious. Uh, uh, I said I was going to try and temper my reactions. I have failed for this movie. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it? (laughs) I just want to hear your reaction to the scene before he leaves to go to medical school with the lightning on the hill. Mm. Do you know that? Oh, yes. And Carter gets the shocks and she goes, how do you feel, Elizabeth? And she goes, alive. Alive. (laughs) And her fingers were like, yeah. Like you could hear the sound effect guy hitting. That was early enough in the movie where I wanted to say "fuck you," but I gave it more rope because you know, we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get to a good scene. This is just the clunky opening, but we're gonna get to the goods here, right? We never ever get to the goods. No, yeah, I I mean, I like the people who lived on the farm. I'm trying to find something. Yeah. They were great. They were really nice people. <laughs> the production design is impressive. I thought it was interesting that he used uh, electric eels to ignite the creature instead of the traditional lightning. Yeah. Because to be fair, uh, in the book, it never implicitly says that he uses lightning. He does say it's on a dark and stormy night that I, my creation came to form. But like, it doesn't necessarily mean that he had to draw in the lightning. I thought that was at least a different approach because we'd seen the lightning trick in every other Frankenstein movie. Let's try something else. Okay. Well, and like the book is like, I I actually struggled with the book the first time I read it because I don't find it to be like an easy read. Like it's slow. Like it's not. It's too period. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like it was, great once I finally got through it but it wasn't something that I just like breezed through and I just this movie was like the opposite (laughs) I just wanted to breeze through because I just kind of wanted it to be over it it seems like he approached it like a melodrama or an action movie when it's a tragedy and a horror movie like the tone was just completely wrong like right out of the gate and he committed to it uh it's wow Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't really have. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. I just thought it was a lot, and I watched it twice for this because wow. it was the first movie I watched, kind of when we first talked about it, and. I needed to kind of revisit it to be like, okay, what were those parts that I wanted to talk about again? And then I watched it again, and I was like, no, I can't. It's <laughs> it's appalling. <laughs> All right. What's going on? Oh, man. Well? He's here. Who's here? He came out of the closet. Tim. Nobody's here. What are you talking about? Oh. Him. Okay. Tim. It's just a story, okay? He's not real. Well, let's have a look around then, shall we? Back here. Oh, okay. Hello. Nope. Nobody home. Just us. The Boogeyman, or I guess just Boogeyman, according to the title here. Uh, it's produced by Sam Raimi, and he has a thing for putting together relatively lower-budget horror movies and sort of bringing... Yeah, but he sort of supports young up-and-coming directors, gives them their first sort of big-ish movie, uh, put their stamp out of there. And a lot of the times, good things have come out of this. The whole American Grudge franchise, or Don't Breathe, which I reviewed with Matt, was one of his. Like, uh, He's produced a lot of really good horror movies. Boogeyman isn't really one of them, and the problem is, is that the it's a wasted opportunity. I, I've always, since I was a kid, loved and hated the idea of the Boogeyman. Hasn't everyone? <laughs> like... Uh, it seemed like there was going to be a movie made about the Boogeyman and that it needed to do justice to every kid in the world who has pissed the bed because they were too scared to go to the bathroom in the dead of night. Um, and for me, it was always Bloody Mary. Like, right. kind of the same idea, right? Like, that was sort of that Boogeyman sort of character, the bathroom, the dark lights, you say yeah. her name, whatever. And, yeah, like, it it's the thing that nightmares are made of for hundreds of everybody, right? Yeah. And it's the unspoken fear of the dark it's sort of putting a like a face or a name to that thing that keeps you in your bed when you're a little kid and you have to pee but the house is quiet the house is dark and the boogeyman's gonna get me this is really really good material for a horror movie and like and also on all the movies we watch this was sort of the most like kind of classic horror like trying to be more of a horror movie than the other ones were, yeah. I found. Yeah. So it, ha it had a really different feel to me than all the other movies on the list. But Unfortunately, early in the podcast, Matthew 
and I reviewed a movie called Darkness Falls. And I feel like the review for this movie could be that review repeated. <laughs> really. I mean, even the structure of the story, like uh, in that movie, it's the tooth fairy ghost. And the, That's terrible. Right? The little boy survives a tooth fairy attack and then returns to this hometown many years later to revisit the horrors. And then all of a sudden, inexplicably, the tooth fairy's not only there, but killing people. That's pretty much exactly what we have here in the Boogeyman. When he's a little kid, he's scared. His dad comes into the room to comfort him. He wants his dad to prove to him there's no Boogeyman. His dad goes to the closet. The Boogeyman gets him. <laughs> Fast forward 20, several years later, and he's returned to his small town. He's got the girlfriend, and creepy shit starts happening again. People start going missing around him. And I guess the only points I'll give the movie is that I thought I was ahead of the movie, and I wasn't. The entire movie, I was like, okay, the boogeyman's going to frame him for all of these deaths, and the movie's going to end, he goes to jail, and the boogeyman goes on to be the boogeyman. I guess, to the movie's credit, it didn't go that obvious with it. Yeah. <laughs> but that is not enough to get it over the line for me to say that it was at all interesting or frightening. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't know. Like, So I was saying, so... Like a bit of a spoiler here, if you're listening, that I kind of talk about the new Invisible Man movie that came out, and that I had just seen the Invisible Man, right. and then I watched Boogeyman, and the first little bit where you're trying to figure out if he's actually just crazy, crazy, like because he gets as a kid, they they convince him that his dad just ran out on him, and he gets checked into psych wards, and he kind of spends his whole life thinking that he's crazy and that he made all of this up. And there are points in the movie where I wonder if if they were going to... See, that's the route I thought they were going to go. Right. I thought that he had done all of these things, but had convinced himself that it was this... The boogeyman. Yeah. And so, like, when they didn't go that route either, I was, like, really disappointed because I was like, that would have been a really great way to do it. And then the whole ass, like, the actual scene where you finally see everything happening is just so cheesy. And that's that budget piece. And, like, it was just really bad. A lot of people will say, well, it was a low budget, so we can forgive the shitty CGI. I don't necessarily agree. This is 2005, okay? Fair. Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park were in 1993. Granted, both of those movies had considerably bigger budgets than that, but this movie only had three scene, three or four scenes that needed, quote, extravagant CGI. And it's so laughably awful that it's just like, I don't even think that looked good in 2005. It, it looked unfinished <laughs> to Well, me. and even like for me, I would say like The Thing from 1980, whatever, I remember when The Thing was called. 82 like, or something. It, it's not scary by today's standards, but when I look at it, I get really unnerved oh, watching. Yeah. Still to this day, I get creeped out. I mean, I'm but, all about I'm all about like I'll take uh, actual physical effects over digital most of the time. But I get that we're in an era where the digital effects are getting good enough that that they can trick me. But if yeah. it's going to be that bad, if it's going to look like a, a deleted scene from the Lawnmower Man or something like that, just start again. <laughs> uh, 
essentially what the movie becomes is just a jump scare movie, right? Like, we're just going to walk slowly down a hall, and then a door is going to slam, or a character is going to stick their head out and say, hey, what's going on? And we're supposed to jump and be scared. I, I just, it's such a missed opportunity, because there's no, like according to Hoyle lore on Boogeyman. Everybody has their own idea of the Boogeyman. So everything was on the table here. It's kind of like that Pennywise, right? Like he takes the shape that you're most afraid of, sure. right? That was the point of it. So, and then, but then like there was the Franny, the little girl in the garage with like the missing, like, the, like that whole plot, like I felt didn't, I didn't understand it, honestly. Right. Like I was like, so well, that was. That was a twist that I totally saw coming again. The, the little kid that just inexplicably shows up and knows about the boogeyman is asking, yeah, he's a ghost. I get it. <laughs> like, he's the one yeah. person that believes you. You only ever see him when you're by yourself. And that includes in the middle of the night in a park. This kid's just hanging out and you don't question it. Like, again, that's one of those things where a movie's trying to set up an aha moment. And it's so obvious that, like, it kind yeah. of, it, it's a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> um but, like I said, I was waiting for the big gotcha moment at the end, and at least they didn't do that. What they did was lame. What they did was lame, but it wasn't like, aha, we're going to fool you, audience. You thought this was going to happen, but this happened and said, no. It was a very straightforward, he did literally confront the boogeyman, and he was proven that he wasn't crazy, and he defeated it at least to his own satisfaction. What would happen to him personally afterwards? I mean, that's a whole other movie. A lot of people are still missing or dead, and he's got no way of explaining it. <laughs> so, good luck. I think they made, like, a Boogeyman 2 and 3. Like, do you think yeah. maybe they explained them in those ones, or did they just leave it and move on? <laughs> Listen, I watch a lot of horror movies. I, I Like, I've watched all of the Children of the Corn movies. I have not made time to go on with the Boogeyman ones. Maybe they're going to make a good Boogeyman horror movie, but this just wasn't it. And, uh... With the typical diminishing returns that is direct-to-video sequels, which the Boogeyman movies were, I, I just, I, there's only so many hours in the day, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't really have a lot of redemption. For, like, at least with the other movies, I like, oh, I like this, or that was kind of good, or I, whatever. But this one, I struggled to kind of come up with, like, what I like about <laughs> here's some facts about it emily deschanel is in it the sister of zoe deschanel that's i guess yeah. maybe that's interesting later played in bones which i really enjoyed to a point my yeah. wife's a big bones fan and uh, lucy lawless who uh, does a lot of work with uh, sam raimi and who's married to the producer rob tappert has a nice supporting role role as a sort of crazy mom and uh she doesn't have much to do in the movie, but it's kind of nice that she's there. But this is neither good nor bad. This is just me saying stuff about the movie. Like, I think I told you when we started to record this episode, like, there was one movie that I was worried that I just... I don't know what to say about it. I don't... It, it's bland and flavor... It's a flavorless mint. You're rolling it around in your mouth and under your tongue, and you're waiting for that sort of satisfying flavor to kick like in. Have a baba that just loses it after like two minutes, and you have to throw it out. And even yeah. the comic's not funny anymore. <laughs> but it's hard to play D for it. Like at least in the other ones, like even in Frankenstein, there was some good acting in Frankenstein. Or there was they were trying stuff with letters to the big man here. They weren't trying here. This is product, and it feels like product, and it feels like bad product. 
Give us a good Boogeyman movie. Have you ever read the Stephen King short story, The Boogeyman? I have not. Um, it's it's like a 12 page story from the night shift collection i'm sure if they stretched it into a movie it would probably break it but by itself a way better boogeyman story <laughs> than this is and way less time in way less up. time uh it's short shrift but I'm, I'm i'm out of shit to say is there anything else you want to say about boogeyman no i think i think that just about covered it good deal i know you're afraid of rats mary you told me but what else are you afraid of I don't know, sir. Bad dreams? Let's see. Confined spaces? Yes, of course. But what you're saying is you're never afraid of yourself. No, sir, I didn't say that. You are afraid of yourself. So, uh, Stephen Frears directed this, I guess, adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He made a couple movies that I'd like quite a bit before this. Uh, Dangerous Liaisons was the big Oscar one that people really got behind, and it is an enjoyable movie. Uh, but I really, really love The Grifters, with uh, John Cusack and Ed Benning, and they're a bunch of con artists, and it's really it's a it's a well done movie. And he's really good at characters and uh, sort of earned payoffs usually like it'll take a while for stuff to happen but he set things up so well that when 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 shit goes down it really counts in his movies that was sort of the impression i at least had going into to this one this is not one of my favorite of his films i'm gonna say that right away it is kind of a reunion from dangerous liaisons we have glenn close and we have john malkovich here and it is a take on the Jekyll and Hyde story as seen through the eyes of the housemaid uh, Mary Riley, played by Julia Roberts. Apparently, it's based off of a novel. I haven't read the novel, so I don't have that arc or like sort of perspective on it. But I think my problem with the conceit of the movie before I get into the actual, you know, moving parts of the movie itself is if we're going to see the lens of this story through this particular character, why are we choosing this character? What does she do? What does she play into the story that is of value that gain us a different perspective and the answer to that question unless you can tell me otherwise is there is no card for her to play she was just a witness as if we were there's no real reason to show the story through her eyes other than it's a different approach <laughs> so it's it's tough it's one of those movies where I see what they're going for and I want to like it, but in the end, it just doesn't have enough air in the tires. There's just a real momentum and energy problem with the movie. It's well acted, it's good, but it's not good enough. Yeah, like, I mean, she's sort of othered from the other servants right from the start because she's new. Yeah. And she's educated, like, she gets caught reading books, so... She is kind of set off as being different from not quite the same as other servants. They're all very loyal to him. So, like, that's the only piece I could give you on why they chose that particular mate or servant. Right. I mean, that's not really... They could have picked any other character and told the story from... She was the prettiest, and she did catch Hyde's, well, both characters' eye. So, I I mean, from that perspective. But as far as what she does, what she contributes to the narrative of Jekyll and Hyde, unfortunately, very little, as it turns out. (laughs) 
Um, Malkovich is a more interesting case. There seems to be this sort of revisionist history in Malkovich that he's more of an overactor. I really, I, I do think he's good, and he can like overplay his hands at times. Uh, I remember having a debate with my old uh, drama teacher about Dangerous Liaisons. I thought he was really good in Dangerous Liaisons, and uh, Pam, my teacher, was basically, no, that's a modern performance in a in a mannered movie. It didn't didn't fit with everything else that was going on. And watching Mary Riley, I absolutely see what she's talking about. Whereas his modern performance in Dangerous Liaisons works because of what a piece of shit character he is and the way he sees through everybody else. He, he felt like a modern character in, in a non-modern context. This is the same thing again. Right. And it, not, it doesn't work as well. Neat for either character. I mean, he plays two parts, and one of them he's got short hair, and one of them he's got long hair. But the 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 transformation isn't such that it should fool anybody. No one would would like walk away saying those were two different men. Like that conceit doesn't hold water. <laughs> so. well, and there's a quick narrative about how maybe it's the seed, that maybe it's like a son of his, because they do look kind of the same. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah. There's like right at the end, one of the servants is kind of joking that maybe he's a long lost son because, you know, he never had any fun as Dr. Jekyll and right. sort of, right? And it was like, come on. <laughs> it would make sense why he was making all these excuses for him too, if they were blood related. They, the, they could, they maybe should have made more of that. It would have, it would have sold the, the idea that nobody saw this coming. They never see them two at the same time and nobody, nobody puts two and two together or tries to. In the end, it's it's little things that I end up finding interesting about the movie. I, the grim backstory about Mary Riley being locked in a cupboard with a bunch of rats, that was yeah. that was dark. <laughs> um, yeah, but dad storyline, like daddy storyline. <laughs> yeah, and him like wanting to be forgiven and and kind of repro like being furious at her for not accepting him in spite of this terrible torture and the implied sexual abuse. <laughs> Well, and she said, like, it wasn't him, it was the drink. Like, she never really held her dad accountable for despicable things that he did. Like, he, she always blamed the drink or the, you know, was whatever, the addiction. So, here's a that, question Is Julia Roberts good in the movie? Well, I will tell you that I do not think she is good in the movie. I have to agree. And also, when I was thinking about how many of these movies had really shitty accents, <laughs> two of our movies made the worst accents ever, and hers is one of them. And I bet you, you can guess no, the second I, one. I guarantee you I know who the other person is you're talking about. For me, it wasn't that it was a wall-to-wall terrible accent. It was an inconsistent accent. Sometimes it was there, and sometimes it wasn't, depending on how difficult that particular line was for her. It was like the Kevin Costner school of, of, of accents. We'll, we'll do it for the first couple scenes, but if it gets too difficult, we'll just slowly eke it out. And I actually couldn't quite place it at first. Like, it was like, I, I wasn't exactly sure what she was trying to I'm pretty do. sure she was going for Irish. <laughs> yeah, I, I did get it eventually. But it, it, it wasn't initially clear to me that she had an Irish accent. So, she wasn't terrible in it. But she wasn't great. No. She didn't and then, bring anything to it that, like, anyone else, like, Anyone else could have done, but she didn't bring anything extra. 
This was the big bomb that happened for Julia because she. This is the apex of her fame when this movie came out, and inexplicably, in spite of the fact Julia Roberts was in this movie, nobody fucking cared about it, and it maybe kind of earns that. I think Glenn Close does nice work as like the madam of the the, the prostitutes, and uh, it was kind of cool seeing Kieran Hines and Michael Sheen, these two really big actors who have like tiny one scene roles in the background of Mary Riley. They hadn't popped yet, but. There they are, and it's kind of cool to see them. And But that's not why you watch a movie like Mary Riley. You don't do that to spot background celebrities. You want to be thrilled or engaged or sort of affected by the tragedy. Did you well, feel anything at the end of this movie? Um, not really. I Like, I was affected with the brothel scene. Like, when she goes to the brothel and... The, it's super like, uncomfortable. Blood everywhere. And oh, yeah with its intestines out on yeah. the bed that like that scene I was like ooh like that's rough like I just I did I did not enjoy that part of the movie it kind of made me cringe right. but that was like maybe the extent and the backstory of Julie Roberts like that was like what, that, those are the moments that I was invested in the movie in those moments and but like not in the I wasn't at all in the Jekyll and Hyde like really invested in the like Jekyll and Hyde and maybe it was that yeah. tortured childhood that was the reason they chose it to be Mary Riley's perspective. They could just put this extra layer of horror on what is kind of a science fiction story as much as a horror story. But um, as a result, everything else takes backseat to Mary Riley. And Mary Riley's, you know, not a. She's not a super engaging character. She's very quiet. She's very meek. She's very submissive. She doesn't have a lot of agency in her life. And uh, she does do stupid things. She will wander down a dark hallway towards what she knows is danger. <laughs> like, uh, as a protagonist, she's not super strong. And uh, all of the interesting stuff should be happening with the Malkovich character. But somehow, as much as I am a defender of Malkovich, I just don't feel anything. I don't feel yeah. anything. When we finally get the big special effects transformation or when he gets the slow I'm dying of poison and isn't it a wonderful like it just to save you. Yeah. Or you sit by it. Yeah. Or the way he like almost is compassionate or some, maybe the compassion is not the right word, but to the Hyde character who has committed several murders. When he finds out that that Hyde has poisoned him, he, he says, Well, Hyde has shown me sympathy. How nice of Hyde. <laughs> like, right. that's the wrong choice like this murdering spree is over and I'm going to die and maybe I deserve to die but he shouldn't die grateful to his counterpart to murdering him I just didn't Meh. yeah I so I have a question for you did you understand why they brought in like Mary Riley's death of the mother character like all of a sudden like this plot line is sort of moving forward and she's starting to put more and more together mm -hmm. and then her mom dies and she has to go and part of it, like, she sees her dad at the funeral. So I think that was, like, I, I just think it was like, it just seemed like this, like, interjection that really wasn't necessary. It was, it was kind of the payoff for the story about her abuse as a child, right? There was no reason for her to see her father again unless some right. yeah. cataclysmic event happened. She wasn't going to bump into him or she wasn't going to have that conversation unless she had to. And on yeah, her mother's that death... in the story, though? Like... 
Well, if you're going to call the movie Mary Riley, you get you got to give Mary Riley something to do, I guess. I mean, I'm not necessarily defending. Like, I get 100% what you're saying, really. Like, it probably doesn't need to be here, but... It's I, not like there's, like, a second story that needs to happen. I don't know, like... If I cared enough, I would read the novel to see if there was some take in the novel that got missed in the film, but I just... I, I don't see that happening <laughs> for me. yeah. I just felt like I, I liked Jekyll though. Like when he was dark, like when he was Jekyll, I really liked, I mean, I liked him as Hyde too, but I found him quite interesting as Jekyll. Like, cause he was also very subtle as Jekyll. Like Hyde was really this sort of over the top monster, right? Yeah. Like aggressive in your face. Like he's very, but like Jekyll was sort of softer in his weird like that weird sort of no i think the idea he was going for is that uh with dr jekyll he was outwardly fairly composed but inwardly wrestling with a lot and with hyde he was outwardly fucking crazy but he had an inner sort of peace and inner sort of certainty about him like confident yeah for sure but, but it just should have worked better. Like, it's just one of these movies. Like the director, like the cast, it's Jekyll and Hyde. Like it's certainly not the debacle that that Frankenstein was. There's on our list, right? <laughs> but um, it's just it should it's it should be more than it is. I think it was also very subtle. Like in that so sort of comparing it back to again Frankenstein, that was just like every scene. Like, in Frankenstein, nothing was left to my imagination. Everything was right on the screen. Yeah. But in, in Mary Riley, I kept thinking, am I missing something? Like, it was this sort of slow-moving, really slow. And I, I wasn't missing anything. No. It just wasn't there. But well, I was questioning that maybe I was indeed missing elements. That well, it's like Frankenstein was all coked out. And uh, this one's more like a sedative, sedated somehow, <laughs> you know. Um, a little pavilion, you know, just chilled right <laughs> I will say it's a, quote, horror movie that might actually sort of cross the line to people who don't typically watch horror movies. It feels much more like a, you know, opulent Oscar piece than it does like your grim slasher movie. So it might have more of an audience than just the horror fans. But I think that the Oscar crowd might appreciate this movie more than the horror crowd. The only other thing I'll say is that because uh, I, I would like to see like timeline the actors in the movie to see what other movies they were doing around this movie. Yeah, and there was a moment when I looked at Glenn Close and I was like, "Wait a minute, she was Cruella Deville." That's right. In the same year, they were filmed and released in the same year, and there's a piece where I'm like, "I think she's just using the same costume <laughs> piece right now." She had this one like head veil, and I was like, "Pretty sure that was in her Cruella Deville character." And then when I looked it up, yeah, they were released in the same year, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, points to Glenn Close. She looked like the only one on set who was having fun. She was great. Yeah. She did a great job in her in her role. Yeah. Like she was exactly what she needed to be. And yeah, her death was great. Like it was just, she's great. I liked her. I did like her, but I think the movie is largely unmemorable. Yeah, I agreed. Undoubtedly, the Loch Ness Monster exists as myth and as an amalgam of myth. 
I've always been interested in the difference between fact and truth, and I would call it the ecstatic truth. Millions of people are believing that in these deep waters, some sort of a dinosaur is dwelling. Professor Carnell, do you really believe in the monster? Absolutely. I mean, there's been 10,000 sightings of this thing over 1,500 years. Last summer, a distinguished team of filmmakers and scientists set out on an extraordinary expedition. Show me one piece of evidence that proves this thing does not exist. They're saying, show us the evidence. I'm saying, show us the non-evidence. Their mission, to uncover the legendary secrets of Loch Ness. A lot of strange things happened on the boat, and I just knew that there was something seriously wrong. Okay, Incident at Loch Ness. I mean, say what you will about this Zach Penn movie. It's different. <laughs> it's different. I am a huge fan of Werner Herzog, who's like the main character and the director of the faux movie. And the crazy thing about this, like the whole interview that they have setting him up at the beginning of this movie, everything that he says in that interview is 100% true. This yeah. guy is an amazing, legit, real-world filmmaker. And what he's doing in this movie is kind of both the joke and the outrage of the movie itself. Like... I love Werner Herzog. He's made great documentaries. He made great feature films. And he's also just kind of an amusing person with that, that thick German accent and the way he, like, <laughs> to me, the birds, they do not sing. They sound like they are screaming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the person, the uh, filmmaker who uses storyboards, he's using the instruments of a coward. He, he just has all these great, like, super German quotes. <laughs> And he's aware of his persona. He shows up in comedy movies making fun of himself. And uh, he was in the Star Wars TV show Mandalorian. And, like, he fits in a Maz Eisley cantina completely fine. I love Werner Herzog. I don't know how Zach Penn talked him into doing this movie. But it's kind of, like, it's kind of amusing to me that the movie exists. The tricky part is when we have to move past the existence of the movie and into the quality of the movie. Because although I find it interesting and they are making some pretty obvious commentary on the, you know, art versus commerce in the making of a d documentary, of course, Herzog's representing art and Zach Penn's representing commerce. And then we have this background of the myth of the Loch Ness Monster and the culture of Scotland. And it kind of comes out as a slurry. And I couldn't say that it 100% works. But much like I said with the uh, letters from the big man, I will give a certain amount of points to the movie for originality yeah, and, and, and just for being incomparable. Like, I can't compare Incident to Loch Ness to any other movie. So my confession about this movie is when I first looked at the list, I know that it said Incident at Loch Ness, but I thought that I needed to watch Beneath Loch Ness, which is a very different movie. Oh, okay. And I spent the first, like, 20 minutes of this movie very confused as to what the fuck was going on. Because I it was not at all the movie that I thought it was going to be. Right. I didn't have the context for who Werner Hertzberg was. And, it just, and so I was like, I, I really did spend the first 20 minutes, like, you can't see my face, but just, like, so confused and then Jeff Goldblum comes to the dinner party and everything yeah. 
I don't even know what's going on anymore. Like, so I had to kind of like take a step out of the movie for a minute and just like, what the fuck is going on? And so I enjoyed that process of like not knowing. And then it's like when people read the onion articles and don't realize it's satire. Right. totally me for the first like <laughs> 20 minutes of that movie and like and then when I like figured it out I was like oh, oh I, I think I I think I get it now like haha this is super funny <laughs> didn't, didn't really well know. it's not super funny like I said the the satire is pretty much on the nose and what you'd exactly expect it to be it's all comes down to how amusing you find Zach Penn and Werner Herzog and it, I hope you find them amusing because it takes a good hour for anything to really happen in the movie. It's just basically all about this botched production of this documentary. <laughs> um, so, again, it's one of those things. It's not exactly funny, but it's not exactly not funny. It's not exactly scary, but it's not exactly not scary. It's not exactly boring, but it's sure not exactly exciting. So where do we land on it? I land on it that I'm glad the movie exists, but I, again, much like Letters to the Big Man, don't know who I could possibly recommend it to. Matt. Matt? (laughs) Yeah, but probably like this movie a lot, like that whole mockumentary sort of like, and I like the whole like movie in a movie, like it was super like meta with what it was trying to accomplish, right? And, And that was the part that I kept trying to figure out, like, is this is this happening? Is this like, like, and then I, yeah, I read all about it, figured it all out, but I thought I laughed a lot in this movie. Well, that's like, good. I thought it was really absurd and, and I just, I just laughed. Like, I just like, these people are just like, what is even happening? And <laughs> I, I quite liked it. Good. Like, not gonna lie. Like, I, I quite, I wouldn't say I quite liked it. I enjoyed watching it i don't know how rewatchable this movie is like now that i kind of know how it all plays out and yeah like i think maybe i'd catch some of the jokes the second time through that maybe i missed when i was like puzzling over what was actually going on well if you get yourself a dvd copy of it i can recommend one thing check out (laughs) the commentary because zach penn and Werner herzog do a commentary in character (laughs) And they fight so much that, of course, Verzog storms out halfway through the commentary track. But they play it legit. All of this, according to their commentary, it really happened. It's a real movie, right? So I kind of like the extra layer of meta on top of this meta movie. That's really good, yeah. Why don't you check that out? And typically I appreciate, like, Zach Penza, like, willing to shit in his own hat and wear it. Like, he's kind of making fun of himself and, like, the idea, yeah, we need a we need a chick in a super small bathing suit in this documentary <laughs> about Loch Ness, because that's going to help us. Or the fakest-looking floating Loch Ness head was going to be somehow a big win for this documentary. And that somehow Werner Herzog was going to be on board for all of this fuckery like uh i get what he was going for but i think the joke runs out of steam for me before the movie lets go of it (laughs) i don't know though the model in the wetsuit and then when she actually is the only person on the board who knows how to use the sonar machine because she did research for her role like yeah and yeah she's not just a pretty face she she knows her shit she came prepared she's actually one of the most level-headed people on the boat as it turns out i thought that was a nice bit 
I, I, I kind of like that they did that with her. Like, it was like, cause at first it was just so stupid. And then, but she really redeemed that character. And like, and like that, the hey, actress yeah. got something to do other than show her tits, which in a lot of horror movies, that would have been all she would. I mean, don't get me wrong. She shows off her, her boobs and they're impressed. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, I just, when she like, takes over and starts working the sonar machine. I just thought that was like a really nice touch. <laughs> but not much more than that. Yeah. There's the scene you were talking about earlier in the movie where there's a dinner party at, at Herzog's place. And yeah, Jeff Goldblum is there. Crispin Glover is there. Ricky Jay is there. I'm like, I want to be at this dinner party. And if you have all of those people, like you should like spend time with them. They, they, Jeff Goldblum gets a couple of lines, but everybody else are just people sitting at the table. <laughs> it's just like... What happened? <laughs> well, then that's when I was, like, that's when I still had no idea that I wasn't watching Beneath Loch Ness. I was yeah. like, this is not the low-budget Loch Ness movie that I was hoping and expecting. But, but can you seriously imagine having supper with Werner Herzog, Crispin Glover, and Jeff Goldblum? No. Jesus <laughs> wept. Like, like that's crazy. Like, I would it's, never, I would either never want that dinner to end, or I would run in terror from it. Like, yeah. No, that was, uh, yeah, that was, but then, it, like you said, it did, were there, but that didn't add any, like, it was just, and then they moved on. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, are they just doing that to, like, get their names? In? I, why do they want to be a part of this? Like, why was that dinner party even happening? I think another missed opportunity is that if Werner Herzog was going to make a documentary about Loch Ness, I would be interested to hear his take on it, right? Yeah. Until he sees the creature, he doesn't believe it at all. Uh, but like, uh, I, I think that he would he would be an interesting subject for him. And he, since he does it on every other, like, he's an incredibly prolific filmmaker. I would have been interested to hear like what his real take on this was and. They never really get into the subject of the Loch Ness thing, other yeah. than it's about the Loch Ness creature, and of course the um, what do they call him, the paleo botanist or paleo scientist that they hire, who's just an actor, but he's so committed to the role that like Herzog's actually like believing in him when he finally comes out that the guy actually is just making this up. He's playing a role. It's just this yeah. utter yeah. layer of defeat to Herzog again. Like there's no reality to my documentary. Nothing real is happening. Yeah, no, I forgot about the paleo, historical paleobotanist, I think. Is that what it was? I couldn't remember, but yeah, something like that. He was great, yeah. <laughs> Coming up with all of these things that they need and things that he's found and histories that he's discovered and yeah, it was awesome. So similar to Bigfoot, do you want Loch Ness? Like, do you think that the Loch Ness exists? Like, is it the I same realm for you? genuinely do not believe in the Loch Ness Monster. I mean, I guess, again, another, if a, if a, a dinosaur showed up in the modern world, it, be it in Loch Ness or be it in the Amazon or in the ocean, uh, that would be a game changer for me. And in a way, part of me would be grateful to it. But uh, it doesn't have the same romance to me as Bigfoot. Bigfoot. I don't know why. I just like the idea of there being a Bigfoot out there that he's managed to stay hidden from us. Like, I don't know. There's something romantic about Bigfoot in the way that there's something obvious about Loch Ness. Of course, there's a monster in your lake. Just the same way every theater department is haunted and the same way that, like, you know, every campground has a story about a, a terrible murder that happened that one summer. Yeah. It's just... It's ubiquitous, you know, like uh, 
it's this monster for this lake. It, you know, it is a great modern myth. It's probably the most famous of the lake monsters easily, but um, oh, yeah, come on. it doesn't. It doesn't have the same draw to me. But uh, I like that this movie exists. But I, I, it, it's an oddity. It's one of those ones file under weird. It's a very specific kind of meal for a very specific kind of audience. I understand why it kind of came and went without making an impression. But I do think that there is an audience for the movie. Like, I'm not saying don't watch Incident at Loch Ness, but I'm saying, and this is not a helpful way to review a movie, I have no idea what you'll make of it. But I kind of feel like it's one of those movies that if you like it, you fucking love it. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, like it's, I feel like the people who this movie was made for are like the ones who quote it. They know the references. Like they 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 know all the little things that I would have missed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they probably watched it. I like I. This is a terrible example, but I think of like Spinal Tap. Like right. People who just throw out those references, and then there's the people who catch them, and the people who don't. And it's like the people who catch them, they're going to be my people. You know what I mean? when you throw out those references and I feel like the very small group of people yeah. who like this movie, but I feel like they would really commit to liking it. If you find Herzog, the character, the man himself funny, like definitely, I think you'll get into the movie cause he spends most of it being super exasperated and they do like work off his real history. There's a scene where Zach Penn pulls a gun on him and there's a, <laughs> a famous story about Ver Herzog and uh, Klaus Kinski uh, where the story was that Klaus Kinsey was being directed by camera and gunpoint because he kept on threatening to quit. And uh, Herzog was like, if you quit the movie, I will kill you and then myself. Like, super hardcore. <laughs> and I wish I would have had some of that more context going into the movie. Like, right. I think I would have gotten a lot more out of it because I, like, afterwards I was like, okay, what is going on here? So I had to kind of, like, rewind and, like, figure some of that. And then I heard the story about the gun and like put yeah. it all together and if you're it all to be. into film and you're into like the behind the scenes stuff and you know Herzog that will definitely be an end to this movie for sure Yeah. but I fall back but on we, what I said about it being not exactly funny and not exactly scary I'm glad that you liked it I, I, I'm in the position where I want to like it more than I do I like it but I want to love it there's just something that's keeping me a little reserved this is the wild card for me like I I, cause I'm like I said, like creature movies are kind of my jam. So I'm the opposite. Like I'm much more romantic about Loch Ness. Okay. Cause I love shark, sea creature, monster under the sea movies. Like you just, you put any of them on the screen and I am glued. Oh, yeah. So I think it's one of the reasons why when I thought it was beneath Loch Ness that I kept coming back to this list. <laughs> so I was like, I mean, of all the movies, we see Loch Ness the least on this list. Like, of all the monster movies we watched, yeah. like, Nessie gets the least amount of screen time it's in true. this movie. But I and I was really sad about that. Oh. Well, I appreciate that she had some, like, malevolence to her. Like, she wasn't the friendly, warm, family comedy Nessie that we tend to get a lot of the times. She meant business. <laughs> I, like and the scenes where she was there, I thought were really fun, like really great. Like yeah. I was, I was digging it. Like yeah. I was into it. So, I mean, I, they were cheesy. They're <laughs> like, like I get it. Like, but I don't know. I thought, I thought it was great. I, I quite enjoyed it. I, is that it was my wild card movie. I was, had no idea what to expect. Uh, and I was, it was better than I thought it was going to be. 
For well, sure. I'm certainly glad to hear that you didn't dislike all of these movies. <laughs> you got to go to him. You got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Join me in eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. I want to be what you are. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Say what you will about Francis Ford Coppola, like he's the real deal. He's he is an artiste. He has several times bankrupt himself to make a movie that he wanted to make his way. Yeah. Bram Stoker's Dracula is an interesting beast in that he needed a hit. A lot of the movies that he'd been making recently hadn't been getting well received, and uh, in order to make his passion project art wank movies, he had to you know pull some bank. Bram Stoker's Dracula would be that project, but it was still going to be a Francis Ford Coppola joint. And it's interesting. Uh, Some of the stuff I've grown to appreciate, like when I first watched the movies, I didn't realize that all those effects were done in camera and that they were using the same kind of effects that they would have used in the period when the original Dracula was made. There's this whole homage to traditional filmmaking in the background of this movie that on an aesthetic level is actually legitimately interesting and impressive. They're using old Hollywood tricks in a modern Hollywood context and using them in a thrilling way. It's so much so that it's kind of invisible. I found this movie the prettiest to watch. Like Easily. Just, like, just to physically look at what was going on. In the, and there was a lot of stuff happening in the background that was important or, or interesting or just, yeah which I really appreciated. It has the Jurassic Park spared no expense kind of (laughs) vibe to it. Like every costume is amazing and almost every casting choice is amazing. (laughs) But uh, in the end, like when we did our our best movies of the 90s episodes, uh, Jason Dubray put this on his list. I think it was like 19 or 20th of his best movies of that decade. And uh, as I said to him, it's not on my list, and I don't feel like I need to defend it not being on my list. Like, I think that it's pretty clear that there are some problems, but it's certainly not the debacle that Frankenstein was. It's the frustrating one where it's so close to being great that the fact that it's being pulled down by these obvious mistakes makes it kind of frustrating because it's so close to being something really great. Yeah, but I I find it interesting that we compared it with Frankenstein because they both have like these sort of over-the-top scenes and scenery and backgrounds and costumes and a little bit of overact, a little bit overacting, like, but... Something about Dracula works for me, and something uh, all of the things about those things did not work in the other one. Like, and I don't know why. Like, I, I can't quite, I haven't quite put my finger on it yet on why one 
worked and one didn't. I think the tone it works. The operatic scale works better for Dracula in that it's a love and death tale, right? I guess Frankenstein is to a certain degree, but to me, that's more of a horror tragedy in vibe. Uh, it, what I liked about Dracula when I saw it when it first came out, sorry. Sorry, for me, Frankenstein is more like the man and the monster sort of trajectory as yeah. opposed to the right. But what I like how he much he embraced the sex and violence in Dracula because that's what Dracula is. It's sex and violence. Uh, you're attracted to this guy, but you shouldn't because he's clearly dangerous. But there's a seduction, <laughs> right? Uh, and like. In that sense, because it's dealing on those sort of body primal themes, I think that the screaming nature of the score and the presentation somehow feels a little bit more justified. It doesn't always work, and there are times where I wish the movie would just calm the fuck down, but <laughs> it's less exhausting than Frankenstein. And I think, like, I think you really brought it when you, when you talked about Frankenstein, is there wasn't as much ego on the screen. In Dracula, like yeah. I didn't feel like any of the characters, like all the characters, but yeah, like whereas like in Frankenstein, it was more of the ego piece, I think, yeah. on the screen as opposed to just behind the screen. And don't get me wrong, Francis Ford Coppola is totally capable of like disappearing in his own ass. Like he, he can absolutely do that, but he wants to get good product here. I think two things that hurt the movie. One of them, I think everybody agrees upon, is named Keanu Reeves. He's just not well cast here. Like, I am a Keanu defender, but he can't do an accent and he can't do period. And <laughs> him and Julie Roberts were on the list for the worst accent. Oh ever. my god! But it's not yeah. it, it, just wall to wall. He sticks out like a sore thumb. Everybody agrees with that one. The one that I get a little bit more flack on because I usually really love Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder feels. Her, I don't know. Again, I guess she feels modern and she's, I don't know, her presence doesn't fit in with the very British, rest of the British cast, maybe. She she just, she feels different than everyone else. They have a character that they make a point of. He is an American, you know, that Texan guy with the cowboy hat and, oh, shucks, American. And, like, they make a point of his Americanness sort of being a, a, his identity because not a lot of Americans hanging out in, 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 in England in this time of the <laughs> place. So, I don't know. There's something about Winona Ryder that feels adjacent and more modern than anyone else. She didn't disappear into it. She's not actively shitty in the way that Keanu Reeves actively stinks up the place. But yeah. I believe Winona Ryder less than I really believe Gary Oldman for some reason. And Gary Oldman's got these weird, crazy outfits on. But there's something... She's not awful. Like, like it's not a bad performance. But she feels adjacent to the movie somehow to me. Um, just something I noticed, especially this viewing that I... <laughs> there it is. Whereas her friend does a really great job of being that character, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know the actor's name, but Lucy is in the movie, and, like, I believe her very, like, I, I liked Winona Ryder. I don't know. I thought she, she was okay. <laughs> Not great. Okay, I'll give you that, but she was okay. Well, maybe that's it. She was okay. And she would like going on a sick run of movies at this point in her career all, all of them were great she had to like drop out of the godfather part three because she was like exhausted and stuff like this but she had gone through a great run and, and uh 
you know, Anthony Hopkins is with, working with there, and, and Gary Oldman. She's quite young at this point, still in her 20s, I think. Yeah. I think I looked it up 20. Yeah. So I think maybe she was just young and, and lost in the experience of it. She's not bad. I just think that she feels different than everyone else. Keanu is bad. Like, like bad. I know a lot of people talk about it like it's a joke I, and everything like that. You defend him? <laughs> Oh, I, no, he's terrible in this movie. <laughs> yeah. But I love him as an actor. Yeah. Like, coming out of this, he'd done, like, the year before, he had done, like, Bill and Ted, the second one, and uh, Point Break. Right. Like, where so that, like, total California stoner dude accent comes through. Yep. At times in this movie. And, like, after, like, he's really great. And he just does not, should not have been in this movie. And it was one of those calculated things. Keanu Reeves was super hot, and uh, like it was going to be a good name to put on the poster. It was going to bring the younger kids out. But if he if he is just clearly wrong for the part, you got to make that change. And it's shocking to me because like Francis Ford Coppola hired Harvey Keitel to star in Apocalypse Now, and they shot like for three weeks or something with Harvey Keitel, and he was like, "This isn't working." And he fired Keitel and hired Sheen to do the movie. Like, he was willing to take these risks. Like, I can't see anyone looking at those dailies of that dinner table sequence with Keanu Reeves and Gary Oldman and thinking that this works at all. And I hate talking this much shit about Keanu, but he did this and coincidentally Brenna's uh, Much Ado About Nothing back to back almost. And he is so terrible in both of those movies that's... It's kind of amazing to me that his career survived it. Yeah, I kind of felt like he was trying to do something so different because he didn't want to be that California stoner dude. And then he just went back to, like, do Speed after that. I That's think. fine. <laughs> like, And you were great in Speed. Yeah. You should have just stayed there. <laughs> I kind of like like stoic Keanu or dumb Keanu really works for me. If you've ever seen I Love You to Death, that Lawrence Kasdan movie where he plays a stoner hitman, like that's that's like every now and then, you know, or his supporting work in Like the Gift. Anyway, we got derailed by Keanu. Uh, he's a small part of the movie, but he does stand out as being awful. But I think that's what kind of saves this movie a bit is that he actually doesn't have a ton of screen time. No. Compared to and like compared to Anthony like Van Helsing's character or Anthony Hopkins' character Van Helsing and Gary Oldman who I just can't I just love like I just like he's that guy that I'm like whenever I'm like I don't know who's playing this character and then it's like oh that's because it's Gary Oldman oh, like he's, I never he's a I chameleon never remember who he is yeah. He's a chameleon. Every movie you see him in, he's completely different and usually solid as a rock. Every now and then, I feel like he overplays his hand, but usually you hire Gary Oldman, you're getting your money's worth. Yeah, that's me. And, like, I always forget that it's him, and then I rewatch, and I'm like, oh, yeah, like, he's in that movie, right? Yeah. And, like, you just I kind of forget about him a lot and then remember that I really like him. And so I was always pleasantly surprised when he was in that movie. <laughs> I, I appreciate... I, oh, this is romantic for me because I watched this movie in high school, like probably grade 11 maybe I watched it for the first time. So really into... It was like dirty and sexy and yeah. like, like, right? And I then I took this uh, romantic literature class in university. So we studied 
Bram Stoker's Dracula. So then I have this like, I I just I, I like I just love this the whole premise of the everything about it. like I just it's just a great story to me. And I do feel Coppola honoring the book in the way that 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 Bernard didn't. It, sometimes to the movie's benefit, sometimes not. They spend quite a bit of time at the asylum and uh, Richard E. Grant's character and his addiction and uh, uh, Tom Waits as Renfield. <clears throat> they're interesting by themselves and I like like those scenes, but they're inessential. Honestly, as far as doing the adaptation of Dracula, if there was fat to be cut, there's scenes there that don't necessarily need to be there that he's putting there because... They just haven't been in any other adaptation of Dracula. I would argue they haven't been in any other adaptation of Dracula, probably for a reason. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting to see them, but I'm not sure if it helps the movie. It just kind of pads it a little bit more. But and then, like, Van Helsing character, like, I, he came in so late to me. Like, I, I wanted him on screen so much earlier. Hopkins he, is having fun with it for sure. <laughs> yeah, he's so great. I, I, I just think he was so much fun to. He was so much fun to watch on the screen too. Yeah. Like, anytime he was there, it was a good scene. Like there were really any stinkers with him. No. And when I say they embraced the sex and violence aesthetic of the novel, they really embraced. Like there are fountains of blood, and they like <laughs> Anthony Hopkins gets a full-on spray of blood in the face, and he retains character. <laughs> Right, the the brides of Dracula are fed a baby in this movie. Like uh, he, the darkness and the sexuality that the the wives of Dracula, that seduction scene with Keanu, it's it's. Where they cut him from above, and he's just writhing on the ground in blood. Yeah, sucking blood out of his nipples. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> and it just like blood comes out everywhere. Yeah, stabbing yeah, the cross. Uh, and. But the, is, the book is have you read the book yeah it's been a long time but yeah Trash. like in the best way possible like it's like the 25 cent books that you pick off the grocery store rack and yeah. you don't yeah. want to show anyone that you're reading it <laughs> <laughs> like and that was the whole premise of the class that i took with it is like what makes bram stoker's dracula considered great when really when you read it like it's it's dirty. <laughs> well, it's dirty, and it, it also, as I remember, leaves a lot to your imagination. Like, uh, yeah. they don't specifically describe the battle with the Count. It's basically, they confronted the Count, and he was killed <laughs> in the book. Like, like they, there's not a lot of uh, attention spent on to the action, or, or it's all about the character, the romance, and the, and the temptation, the luridness. Especially for the time it was written. And in order in the 90s, he wanted to keep that lurid feeling to it, which means he had to just jack up the level of sex and violence, which I do appreciate. Yeah. The movie's exhausting, though. It, it does kind of wear me out. Between the level of yelling that the actors are doing, that score just wailing. It's an impressive score. You, you'll hear that in trailers all the time. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's the Dracula score. Uh but just because it is, it just, it grabs you by the coat, rams your face nose to nose and just screams, this is Bram Stoker's Dracula for two hours. I'm just like, okay, I get you. And I'm here with you. I, I will go with you on this journey. Calm down, dude. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and that's what I mean. Like, it's very similar to Frankenstein that way, but there's something that for me that works with Dracula, and so, like, again, that piece, right? Like, it honors I, the story. Frankenstein kind of 
dishonors the book as far as I'm concerned. Dracula is trying. I found Lucy's demise, like, great, but it could have been a lot shorter. Like, Mm -hmm. just her whole trajectory, that character, like, it was great. It needed to be there, served a purpose, but it could have been, like, way less time. Yeah. They just spent too much time on her development to just ultimately, what was was her purpose? To kind of prove what Dracula was capable of doing, right? Yeah. And I just, I, I thought that was something that, like, if you're going to say, like, trim the fat, like, that to me is something that they could have probably done away with some of. Not all, but some. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, the like, him, Winona Ryder and Gary Oldman walking down the streets of London and seeing the original film projector sequence and uh, him courting her officially, even though he's just going to use his evil vampire powers. Like, I, I get that they wanted there for the, quote, romance of it, but that's sort of kind of where I felt the wheel spinning a little bit in the mud too. It's mostly good, but it's not good enough to get like for me to get excited about it. Uh, like it wasn't one of the best movies of the decade. It's certainly not one of Francis Ford Coppola's best movies, but as flawed as it is and as like much as I do have my problems with it, I will revisit it. Like I, I do come back to it. Uh, so there's got to be something there under all of this mess because um, I come back to it. <laughs> well, and this is one that I do have people that I could recommend this movie to. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Right? Which I can't say about some of the other ones on this list. So yeah. that's a good thing. <laughs> like, and I would watch it again. Like, if you were like, hey, we should watch it. Like, I would have no issue yeah. sitting down and watching this movie again. It's kind of a glorious mess. And it, it's a glorious mess which only a really talented person could make. It's not just any shitty movie. This is a Francis Ford Coppola shitty movie. (laughs) And shitty's overstating it, but you know what I mean. I always sort of, too, like, am surprised at how it ends. Like, I've seen it. I I know how it ends. I've watched it. But when I rewatched it for this, I was like, oh, yeah, they they go all the way back with her. And, like, I had forgotten that, like, I I was, like, watching it for the first time. Like, I was so shocked that... Winona Ryder and Anthony Hopkins' character went back to Transylvania and did the things, and I was like, what? And I was like, yeah, really, you watched this movie, like, <laughs> several times. You should know about this, but it, 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 it yeah, I, I like that about it. Yeah. Do you kind think... Of what to expect. Does the romance work for you? Do you feel the attraction between Winona and Gary Oldman, or believe it? Uh, so this is why I knew how old she was, because I Googled their age difference. Right. Because I think he was like 34 and she was 20. Right. When that movie finished. But then she also kisses Anthony Hopkins. I'm like, he was so much older than Gary Oldman and she was so young in that movie. So I, it was, I had a harder time with it, I think, because I was stuck on that fact that she was only like, I, and then maybe that's the thing that you say about Winona Ryder is I wasn't believing her. Like, right. I couldn't right. get into her because I kept being like, but she was just in Beetlejuice, and she she's only twenty. Like I think I would have gone with it more if it was the seduction. If I felt like he was bad, but she just couldn't resist him. But it felt like they were going for she legitimately connected to this guy, who used his evil powers on her, murdered her best friend, you know, like did all these terrible, terrible things. But she just can't resist. She's just drawn to him, and um, it didn't a hundred percent work for me, but enough of the movie works that like I, I let it go yeah and it's that whole like animal like the, again they sort of beat you over the head with the like animal lust of yeah. the wolf and the 
like the beast creature that he turns into, which was also the only part that I didn't really appreciate because to me that was like he just I thought it was like a werewolf movie all of a sudden like it just like that was the piece that I just didn't appreciate, well, but it kept coming back to that like animal lust and I'm just like yeah okay we we get it. <laughs> uh, yep. They kept kept on giving him interesting powers though, like he could turn into a bunch of rats or a weird green mist. Uh, he could walk around in the sunlight. A lot of the modern takes on Dracula, his son will kill him on the spot. Like, again, there's a lot interesting here. There's almost as much frustrating, but there's enough interesting to give it a passing grade, I think. I actually started like Dracula folklore after I watched this movie to be like, when did those sort of things start happening? Like, just to kind of see where it sat in context. And yeah, so I, I, cause I found a lot of that really interesting too. Like when you use the green mist that came in and things like that. So, um, yeah, but it didn't, I, it didn't really, didn't really sell it for me. And like the part for me too, sorry, I'm just looking here. was like when Keanu first gets to the castle, like that whole first scene of just the two of them was like probably for me the worst <laughs> movie. It's tough. Yeah, like the dinner party, and then he's shaving, and then he sees him crawling on the ground in that red cloak. Yep. And I just like, get the fuck out! What are you doing here? <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't know this. And then he's like, and now I realize that I am a prisoner here. <laughs> it's like you didn't even try. The one that always gets me is, you must understand, I was impotent with fear. <laughs> yeah, that was like, when his hair turns gray and then it turns back to black it's so sad that we, we just can't help it. it it always comes back to how shitty Keanu is in this movie yeah, um, I actually wrote like he keeps looking at the screen like Jim from the office like with the confused perplexed <laughs> eyebrows it's like, like even he can't believe he hasn't been fired <laughs> he doesn't even know what he's doing there like he has no idea what is happening which is again I, I hate to rip on him because he's great like in uh, everything else like I don't have a lot of bad things to say about him but there's like anyone else I, I'm trying to think of anyone else he would have been worse in no. this role and no. like I don't know who it would be they really <laughs> really committed to it yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen Dracula, I say check it out. You might not like it as much as I do, but I don't. I'd be very surprised if you regretted watching it. Like, you may you may not watch it again, or you may think it was kind of hilarious and 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 fall in love with it completely. But it's worth its day in court. Uh, yeah, I I'll I'll revisit it for sure.
Thank you so much, Rayleigh. It's so good to see you. And uh, these are weird days with the whole plague going on and everybody being in their houses. So thanks for making this work through Skype. And uh, thanks for watching a tough bunch of movies. <laughs> yeah. It's really great to reconnect over this pile of movies that we were watching over the quarantine in my defense you did pick the list i mean i gave it to you as an option but you chose it and i, I willingly did choose this list of movies and enjoyed the process of watching them and talking to you about them Good are you ready deal. to reveal our let's rant? do it what was your least favorite of these six movies and why oh okay so my least favorite was boogeyman oh wow okay because it just didn't feel like it didn't fit with the other ones. Like it just, it was just, there was, I, I couldn't get in. Yeah. I, 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 it wasn't worth sharing with people and it, it wasn't a good monster movie. It didn't have, it didn't do the boogeyman justice. I feel like the other movies did the monsters justice, but this one kind of didn't. And he's such a great monster. Yeah. Potential right? squandered. Yeah. So that was my least favorite. Fair enough. And in fifth place? Frankenstein. All right. Yeah, I struggled with it. Like, I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it again. I mean, if I had to, I really, I could. If I had, but I wouldn't want to. I don't know if I'd willingly watch it. Right. And it just, it, I love the book, so I think that was the other piece, and it just totally missed the mark of such a like. There was so much it could have been, and it missed every step along the way. Like, Agreed. A debacle, I think, is probably a fair thing to say. Yeah. Number what, four. Fourth yeah. place. Uh, letters from the big man. Uh, it was great. But yeah, it was <laughs> like it. it she, just there's no resolution. Like there's just the, the, it, not a lot happens in a really long time. I liked it because it was just really pretty to look at. So yeah, that was number four. Good then, deal. Top three time. Three. So number three is Mary Riley because as much as like. I, as much as I didn't like Julie Roberts in the in the role itself, I don't think she brought a lot to the movie. Um, I like the idea of seeing it through the sort of unreliable narrator of Jekyll and Hyde, and like she knows as little as we do as she's trying to figure it out. So I kind of just and I just yeah, I thought it was, thought it was decent. Right. Decent. <laughs> That's my yeah. number three choice. This decent. decent. It, it made it. It made the grade to decent, a solid C minus. Hey man, these get degrees, okay? <laughs> uh, so number two is uh, Loch Ness. I just, it was so funny, and I was so confused. And I love that it was like completely unexpected. Like it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be, and even when I figured out what it was going to be, it was something totally different. And it was original. Like it just had so many things going. Like I haven't seen a movie like that before. Probably won't see a movie like it again. Like I can't think of another movie that I would put with it as a 
comparison. Big points for originality. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, like the model slash scientist slash sonar expert, like that just, <laughs> I can't, I can't say enough good things about that character. She was hot too. Uh, I mean, legit hot. I'm just saying, for the record. <laughs> uh, uh, number one is just Dracula, because yeah. it has to be. <laughs> you know, I, I just love that movie. I love the book. I love Van Helsing. I love the folklore vampire. The movie itself is just, we talked about, like, so pretty. There's so much going on on the sides that even if you don't care about the story, you can watch it. It was great. Nice. And it was great we rewatching it. Like, because I haven't seen it really since high school like sort of that romantic when it first came out and it was like new and exciting right and i thought that of all of these movies that one's probably the most rewatchable i get it i mean uh it's a solid list funny thing is is that we only agree in one spot i wonder if you can guess what that spot is no 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 guess whatsoever well, for me, I just, I, I had to put Frankenstein at the bottom. Like, I just had to. It's, like, clearly better acted, and it's a better mounted production than Boogeyman. But Boogeyman was bad, but it didn't piss me off. Like, <laughs> Frankenstein pissed me off. Like, the first time I watched it, I felt like the movie hurt my feelings. Like, I went in so comp confident that this was going to be at least decent that like i could not believe how bad it was and i kept on waiting all these years later that like uh, i'm gonna lick my wounds and i'm gonna see it. it's not as bad as i'm making it out to be it is every bit as bad as i'm making it out to be it's maybe more memorable than boogeyman but it's objectively worse yeah. i think personally but i don't think we're gonna fight over it. it's not like how dare you not put it at the bottom really i'm disappointed <laughs> so <laughs> not surprisingly in fifth place we put boogeyman and and like like it got lucky getting fifth place as far as i'm concerned like it's tough yeah. i reworked it like a couple of times to sit it with it be like do i really agree with this one <laughs> But I think that, 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 you know, Frankenstein made the extra effort of really triggering some anger in me. So I had to, I had to put that there. In fourth place, I'm putting Mary Riley. <laughs> um, I think that the potential was there. The director's great. The cast is great. The story is solid. Much like Frankenstein, it just should have been better than it, than it was. It's not altogether terrible. It, I think it didn't it, piss you off. It didn't piss me off. It has a clear pacing problem, and it just feels like it, there should be more meat to it or more emotion to it than there is. There's something sedate about the movie. Not terrible, but it's just kind of a slog. It's a bit of a snooze. Yeah, yeah. But then so is my number third choice, which is Letters to the Big Man. I think it fought its way to third place because, like, I like what it's trying to do. I don't know how successful it is at doing it, but I appreciate that it is trying to be quote-unquote straight-faced about Bigfoot. It's not another, the Bigfoot's jumping out to eat people. It's not a, you know, it's a little bit preachy, but its heart's in the right place. It just, it's unfortunate that it's not better than it is. It's interesting, but it's not quite good. But it in this list, it made third position <laughs> the closest i had to uh like a, a debate of whether or not one and two in the end i will put incident loch ness in second place 
it's a very interesting movie and i think like if our discussion like if that says oh i should look up that movie because a lot of people miss this movie yeah it's not amazing but it is very original it is very individual and it has some great moments in it and i think there's enough to it that it's worth a watch i think you're right that there's a certain audience that will like it a lot but most people will probably just kind of find it confounding and strange. <laughs> but I can do with confounding and strange. I'll take it over incompetent or out or, or frustrating. It was just original too. Like I hadn't seen like yeah, like I said it before. Like it was just oh, it really took me by surprise. Being like oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. But it was not a creature movie. So if you are trying to watch creature movies. Do not watch. Not the one. No, this is not the one for you. There are others I can recommend. (laughs) But yeah, number one is Dracula. So I guess we had two till two two alike then, because our number two and number one are the same. Again, it sounds like I have a lot of bad things to say about Dracula. There are problems with the movie, but it's clearly made by a filmmaker. It's very competently executed by pretty much everybody except Keanu Reeves. I I was hard on Winona Ryder, but again, she was twenty and it's. There was just something that felt a little bit different about her performance than everyone else. It wasn't bad. It didn't stand out the way that Keanu's did. But I think that there was enough good in the movie and enough impressive about the movie that, like, it's worth watching. It's not a masterpiece, but the fact that it's kind of broken in places adds to its ragged charm for me in a certain way. Like, yeah, check out Bram Stoker's Dracula. It is. It's not a masterpiece, but it is and. It's an entertainment. Yeah. Yeah, and sex and blood, and it's good. Yeah, yeah. That's what we pay our money to see, and it delivers. But all in all, overall, I'm pretty lukewarm on the list in general. But <laughs> I'm so happy to see you, and that I'm so appreciative of you doing this. So uh, yeah, thanks, really. Um, I believe this is going to be 168, episode 168 of Rankin Review. Okay. Um, and I hope you'll consider coming back. Maybe we'll be able yeah. to do one in person someday when the plague is passed. Well, this is our plan was for this one was, to, I think, to do it in person because we started to start talking before yeah. all of the restrictions came down. So it was good that we were able to do it this way because who knows when I'll be able to actually get Saskatoon. But I was so touched that you were going to do a road trip to do the podcast, weren't you? But yeah. uh, it wasn't meant to be, a, so not this time, but we'll we'll make it work. Every now and then I get down to Regina, too. Beckman likes to give me to check his temperature every now and then. So yeah. We work together now, hey? I heard yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great to have him back around. And yeah, no, invite me back. I'd love to come back and do more talks and Terminators. <laughs> I'll be back. I'll be back. Thanks, girl. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Big thanks and big love to Rayleigh Perkins for contributing to my show. I hope to hear her again soon. If you enjoyed the show, I have some recommendations for you. You should probably check out the Welcome to Riverdale, pardon me, the Welcome to Riverdale podcast. You should probably check out Cobwebs, the Gothic Horror podcast. You should check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. And you should probably, if you're in the mood, check out the Terror Table podcast. They're all friends of the show and they are all good at what they do. Support other podcasts, kids. If you have feedback for me, your host around the Canadian Larry Parsons, you can send that to rankinview 
at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. As always, the website is rankingview.ca. As always, I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and thank you so much for listening to me.